We are not wrapping up our series on Jonah today. You say, how can that be? We're on the last chapter. That's true. We're on the last chapter of the book of Jonah. <laughs> but we started, uh, this is our fifth session in the series of six. And uh, the sixth one will be a week after next Sunday. Uh, my wife and I will be lamentably, we'll have to miss uh, worship with you as we're next Sunday with uh, our daughter's family for the graduation of the first of our grandchildren to graduate from high school. We're reaching that stage, but uh, uh, we will be away from that. And, uh, but I do wanna, want to encourage you to come for, at 9.30 for Zach's uh, class. I'm sorry I'll miss the kickoff, but I intend to be there and hope you will um, on the successive ones as well. Um, Two weeks from today, we'll talk about what Jesus had to say about Jonah. We're not finished until we hear him finish it for us. But today, I want us to look at the last chapter, and without repeating what's gone before, uh, let me just uh, read the last verse of the previous chapter before we turn to God's Word in the fourth chapter. We read that when God saw what they, the Ninevites, did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. And now hear God's word from Jonah chapter 4. It's just uh, 11 verses. But, terrible thing, those buts. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? <coughs> Pardon me. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this vine 
though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 persons who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Thus far in God's Word, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's look to Him once more in prayer. Heavenly Father, truly, if you have not spoken, I have nothing to say, but you have spoken, and you have called us together to hear what you would teach us today by your Spirit from your Word. And so we ask that you would do business with our souls, cause our hearts to be malleable and responsive, that your word may take root and produce fruit, and that the world may see that there is a God among his covenant people, yes, even today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you know by now that I really enjoy C.S. Lewis and also J.R.R. Tolkien and some of, uh, uh, of their contemporaries. Um, one of Tolkien's works is, of course, The Hobbit, and uh, it's really the one that precedes what's called his trilogy, uh, uh, The Lord of the Rings. It's not really a trilogy. Did you know that was written in five books and the publisher put them into three? <laughs> Interesting. Has nothing to do with the sermon. But this does. <laughs> that the Hobbit, the Hobbit is a story of a little small creature, you know, unassuming and uh, no particular desire uh, any longer, at least since his childhood, to go out and face the real world. And he embarks upon a journey. And the journey changes him. And how the journey changes him. The ways in which he changes is Tolkien's point in that book. The Hobbit's just a little folk of Nordic mythology, but he's a tool in Tolkien's pen's hand. The quest which he undertakes, undertakes is one which, in which his own awareness and his own understandings are stretched and they grow. And at the end of the journey, he's a different person. He has unmistakably matured. Well, followers of Jesus Christ are also on a journey and a quest. And it, too, changes us. For the Lord of our journey orders each event along the way in order to stretch us, test us, draw us closer to himself, and ultimately to make us become more like him. You see, God takes us from where we are to what he has purposed all along that we shall become if we are his children. And the point of this fourth chapter of Jonah, there are a lot of different uh, nuances and teachings, but the main point is this, that God desires his servants to reflect his own heart for the lost. I'll say it again. 
God desires his servants to reflect his own heart for the lost. Now, that's taught to us through three things. First, as the chapter would have us to focus upon our God, secondly, upon ourselves, and finally, about our decision in the light of who God is and what we've come to see ourselves as. It's a wonderful preparation for the Lord's table in a few moments. Notice first, then, about our God. God's grace is not limited by our prejudices or loyalties. Verse 1, Jonah was greatly displeased. Verse 5, Jonah waited to see what would happen to the city. You know what he was hoping for, of course. He was hoping at the end of 40 days it had happened anyway. Maybe during that time, you know, temporal repentance doesn't always last very long. And we talked about that last, last Lord's Day. Maybe, you know, they'd uh, revert. Recidivism is high among those addicted to certain behaviors. Mm. And Jonah was going to wait it out. But Jonah lacked God's heart for the peoples, the nations, and especially, as we'll see for Nineveh, Primal religion is filled with tribal gods and, and personal or village powers. As fallen human beings, we're naturally selfish and tribal. We want, since the fall, we want a God, if you will, that we remake who will show favor to those whom we favor and will withhold his goodness from those we dislike. How often you pick up a newspaper and you see that a team that it lost the previous year is out for, quote, revenge, end quote. I hope that's not what they're playing for. <laughs> I hope they're playing to win, not for revenge. And, and uh, we often see it not only in sporting events, but also we see it in uh, politics and we see it in business. We hope that the people who are our rivals will stumble. The psalmist warns us about that attitude of heart, and God does too here. The God of the Bible won't permit us to contain him in our small notions of how we wish to redesign him because his name is Yahweh, the I Am, the self-existent and eternal covenant God whose purposes embrace, yes, all nations. Jonah could have remembered, if he'd taken the moment, to think about how the Hebrew race had its beginning out of the midst of a group of Mesopotamian Gentiles at the heartland of a place where the occult was strongest, Chaldea. God called a man out of an idolatrous household, for his father Terah was an idolater, and said to him, go to a land, leave your father's household and your, your city and people, go to a land I'll show you, I will make of you a great nation, and he said, I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and in you, listen to this, in you shall all the families or nations of the earth be blessed. God's purpose in blessing Abraham was not simply for Abraham's sake. It wasn't so they said, oh, that's a wonderful blessing. I'm going to hoard it to myself. That wasn't the point. 
His being blessed had everything to do with his being the instrument of God's blessing to the nations. Jesus, in his words to, on the mountain in Galilee to, to his disciples assembled before him, said, go into all the world and disciple the lost of Israel in their diaspora. He could have, but he didn't. He said, disciple all the nations, meaning all the people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, one name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity is there, Trinitarian baptism, conversion to that God, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's the whole counsel of God. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, Jesus said. His purpose is for the nations. Any notions that we may have of God that are not aligned with what he's revealed himself to be in his word must perforce constitute heart idolatries. We must be freed of them. See, God's mercy and faithfulness spring from his immutable holy character. It was a beautiful prayer and, and reflection uh, that Paul Wagner brought to us uh, uh, a few moments ago about God's eternality. We're told that God, in, the Lord, inhabits eternity. Reflect on that, if you will. He inhabits the then, the now, and the, that which will be. He is always there. Everything else contingently flows from and exists because of him and through him. That he sustains, holds all things together by the word of his power, and his immutable holy character, verse 2, is known by Jonah. He says, I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from servant, from sending calamity. Where did Jonah get that notion? <laughs> he got it from God. <laughs> Where did God first give it? To Moses. When? On Mount Sinai, when God gave his law and uh, constituted the charter for the people of Israel, uh, just two years after they'd uh, come out from the exodus out of slavery in Egypt, and not quite 40 years before they would enter the promised land. And there God spoke about himself. Moses had said, now show me your glory. God said, you can't handle it, Moses. My paraphrase. <laughs> no man living can gaze on my face and live. But there's a crevice, a cleft in the rock, a cave nearby, where I will cover you with my hand and cause my goodness to pass by. And you'll see the late Dr. Laird Harris translated the Hebrew. He was an expert in it. The after effects, <laughs> afterglow of my goodness. For my face no man living can see. And he did. He passed before Moses, and it's recorded in Exodus chapter 34 in verses 6 and 5 through 7. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, Yahweh, the Lord, the I Am. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, listen, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, and abounding in love and faithfulness. Maintaining love and faithfulness 
to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Now Jonah knew that. God would later say through another prophet, Malachi, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, you sons of Israel are not consumed. And Malachi would pronounce that after the nation had finally been given the final chastening, carried into exile in Babylon, and then restored by the gracious hand of God because his love never fails, it never gives up, it never runs out on his covenant. And he had a purpose yet. A purpose to bring from a little town that would sprout up, and its name means sprout, sprout town, called Nazareth, not far, an hour's walk from Gath-Hefer, which is where Jonah was from. And out of that town would come the one who would fulfill all the promises of God for the nations and for his own people. Ah, but more on that two weeks from today. But you see, God's mercy and faithfulness not only spring from his immutable holy character, but they are extend to multitudes of sinners and to creation itself. Verse 11 says, Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who can't tell their right hand from their left. And some have tried to say, well, that just means they were all illiterate. No. Uh, the very obvious meaning is, is these are little children and they don't know left from right. The population then would have been 600,000, a million, something like that, counting slaves and, and others. Big city, a great city in, the size, in terms of its size and its influence. And there are 120,000 people who are just kids, little kids. And then he says, and many cattle as well. Oh, wait a minute. Don't children count more than cattle? Of course they do. Of course they do. What's God saying? He's saying that his compassion and concern and care extends to all of his creation, Jonah. You're concerned about a single plant, and here's all the cattle. Don't they count more than one little plant that grew up overnight you just tended? But it's your convenience, Jonah. You're more worried about your convenience than my creation, you were supposed to be a caretaker over. That was a part of the purpose. God first put humanity in the Garden of Eden to serve and protect it, to care for it, to extend the boundaries of the temple garden to cover the earth. He didn't make it to be unpopulated, but rather to be filled, that Scripture tells us about the world. But not only does God care for all of creation, but he especially cares for humanity made in his image. Even, listen, those furthest from the covenant. God cares. And he would one day send not only his son into the world, but then through his son, his people, his disciples, then and now, into the world to extend that covenant of grace to embrace the nations. 
in Jonah's day, it was a lighthouse on a hill. The nations were to flow unto Jerusalem. Today, they flow into Jerusalem, not geographically, but seeing Christ and coming to him. In those days, they didn't understand yet the mystery that the Gentiles could be part of the covenant without having to become Jewish. That was a mystery, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. Not yet revealed, but God had it in mind. And there are these precursors that remind his people, you're not here for your own sake. You're here for the sake of my plan for all my people in all my world. Christ community, you and I are not here for our own sake. We are here to be blessed in order to be a blessing. And then we'll be blessed all the more, just as Abraham was. God's mercy and faithfulness in the redeemed creation are reflected in the song sung in the book of Revelation. You know what the song is? It's called the song of the Lamb. The lion of the tribe of Judah who alone can make sense of history, opening the seals, the sevenfold seals on the scroll. He can make sense of all that transpires in human existence. He alone can do that. Apart from that, we're left helpless and hopeless and in despair. But in Christ, we have that hope. And the lion appears, and John looks, and it's a lamb, as it were, had been slain, wounded, bleeding. They're trophies, the wounds of Jesus, the resurrected Christ. Those wounds are the trophies of his love to his people. And all his creation sings a new song. What is it? The song of the Lamb. A song which the redeemed, as the late Dr. Ed Clowney rightly points out, only the redeemed can sing. Creation is redeemed, and in its sense, metaphorically, it exalts God. The angels sing too, but not the song of the Lamb. Not the song of the Lamb, because no angel has been redeemed by the blood of Christ. The fallen angels remain demons and are cast into the abyss, Scripture says. And the righteous and holy angels never sinned and never needed a redeemer. But we, as the people of God, the new humanity created in the last Adam, Jesus Christ, have the place and the privilege to sing a song that even the archangels are not privileged to sing. Do you know that song? The song is of one who says, Lord, I know I'm a sinner today. You're holy. We've talked about your holiness. I know I'm not in so many, many ways. I know your standards are absolute perfection, and I, no matter how hard I try, cannot in myself ever attain to it by myself. I can't even offer you a beginning, an advance down payment toward what I owe you. But you, Lord, so cared about sinners like me that you sent your own, your only, your unique son into the world to become one with our humanity. Everything that is essential about being a human being, just as you and I are, except without sin, living the perfect life, that God expects each of us to live. You wonder how 
God would behave, how he would live, if he had to live in a fallen, messed up world like we face? Oh, he did. Person of his son, Jesus Christ, he dwelt, tabernacled among us. He grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And having lived a righteous and perfect and innocent life, he willingly then went to the cross at the hands of the wicked men that nailed him there, who were the tools and instruments in turn of others and ultimately the sin of all of us who trust in him were laid by God upon the shoulders of our Savior. His suffering was cruel and physically hard, but that wasn't the worst of it. The worst was that his human spirit and soul felt the weight of separation from God the Father for the three hours of silence out of the six hours on the cross until he could cry, to tell us thy it's finished, and he said it with a triumphant shout, not just a whimper that, oh, I'm done for. No, no. It was a triumphant cry so much so that the, the captain of the professional squad of, of uh, executioners stood back in amazement and would say, surely this was God's son. Have you come to understand who it was that gave his life and why he gave it, that it was for you if you have faith in him? You can be sure that it was for you that he went to that cross. And that it's done. You can't add to it. He will work in your life and in your journey so that you will be transformed and send you on a mission that transforms you. And it is therefore transforming mission. A mission that transforms and is transforming. And that's what the table of the Lord refers to, that we are a part of Christ as we partake in him, that the bread and the wine represent his body and his blood, but more than that, that Christ himself is present spiritually by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts as we, by faith, receive him, and that he is with us as he promised to the consummation of the age as we are on mission with him here in Kennesaw and throughout Cobb County and Georgia and the United States of America and the world that is the Lord's and its fullness that belongs to him. We've looked at God briefly. We then look at ourselves. We often don't reflect God's character. We fail in that area. Um, Jonah says he was, we're told Jonah was greatly displeased, even angry. And in verse 9, he asserts the right to be angry, even enough to die, even over something small. You know, when we get really spun up, one of the things we do doesn't take much else to spin us up again and even higher. <laughs> That's our fallen sinful nature. Jonah was just like us. And God had to correct him and rebuke him. There's a difference between God's holy anger, wrath against sin, and ours. I got in my way. I'm frustrated. I had no right to do that. That was my place. God doesn't do that. God deals with sin as sin, righteously and holy. And he did that on the cross for us if we're trusting in him. 
I grew up with, uh, <laughs> this will date me, when uh, Popeye the Sailor was still relatively new comic strip character. And, and long before the Incredible Hulk came along, and uh, some of you may recognize those characters. They're, even the latter is getting old now, but, but each of them has something in common. You know, when they get really mad, that's when they win. You ever notice that? Sometimes with the help of a little spinach. But you know, you, if you get mad enough, you can prevail, see? Now, that's not what the Bible teaches about our anger. It's not what the Bible teaches about being like God. God says, be holy, for I am holy, and that includes the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, patience against such there is no law. See, we tend to desire to bend God's gracious intentions to our own selfish purposes. That's why, verse 2, he says, I was so quick to run to Tarshish. He wasn't afraid of what the Ninevites might do to him. I read that a lot, hear that a lot. That's not why he ran. He had a God problem. He knew if he went to Nineveh that this city that would, has been prophesied one day to carry his own people captive into exile according to Hosea, one of the um, contemporaries, if you will, of Jonah. Amos had said similar things. Again, a contemporary, both prophesying in the same kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom that Jonah did. He knew that was coming, and he didn't want the warning to be given. He didn't want God to show compassion to somebody uh, that would one day be the rod of God's judgment to his own people. Jonah was the patriot prophet. He had a God problem. And he fled because he knew that like Achan of old, after the battle of Jericho, who defied God and hid some of the, the plunder under the floor of his tent, that God sent judgment on the whole community because of the sin of one. Jonah's concern was for the people, his people. Why'd he run? He wanted to get away from the people he was trying to avoid being the instrument of judgment upon. I knew it. I knew it, says, Josh, says Jonah. That's why I ran. And then he succumbs to frustration and despair, angry enough to die. It's said that depression is anger turned inward, and Jonah's anger had reached at least that point. But that leaves us as we see God in ourselves finally with our decision. God's grace calls us, calls his wayward servants back. God repeats his question. Do you have any right to be angry? <clears throat> Jonah doesn't answer. Then he goes out. <laughs> then the intervening time, God interacts with Jonah. Jonah gets angry again, and God says to you the same question. You have a right to be angry. Only one other place in the Old Testament do you find God asking the same question of a prophet. It's on Mount Sinai. And the prophet is Elijah. He'd come there to tender his resignation too. You know, God who commissions you, it's up to him when he relieves you of that commission. And God spoke to Elijah and proclaimed his name the same as he had to, to, to uh, Moses. And where was Elijah? He went into the cave, definite article in the Hebrew, the crevasse, the cleft, 
Which specific one would that have been? In all probability, the one where God had covered Moses. And God passes by, but first, he asks him, why are you here? He doesn't answer. Well, he gives an answer, but it's not a good one. The Israelites have broken your covenants. They're faulting, and look, they've, they've broken down your altars, killed your prophets, put them to death with sword. I'm the only one left. Implication, what are you doing about it? I've done all this. You've let down your, your part of it. It's useless, God. And uh, then God causes, you know, the wind, the earthquake, the fire to pass by. God's not in any of them. They were all there at the time that he, he descended on the mountain with Moses, earthquake, wind, and fire. But he's not in those things. Then there's a still small voice. And Elijah, remembering no man living, can gaze upon God's face in reverence, wraps his cloak around his face, and steps out to the, to the door. And then God asks him the question. He gives the same answer, and now God answers him again. But the same answer, I suspect, with a different tone of voice. And then God says, you don't get it, Elijah. You don't get it. You're going to go back the way you came. In other words, your uh, resignation not accepted. And when you do, you're going to anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Mahola to succeed you as prophet. You're going to anoint Hazael in Syria to be king over Syria. You're going to anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, to to be, um, to be king over Israel. And I'll take care of justice. But Elijah, you're not the only one left. I have preserved 7,000 in Israel, all of whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and their mouths have not kissed him. Do you get it, Elijah? Do you get it? My plan for the world and for the nations and for my people is my plan. You're my servant, my instrument. I'm not impotent. It's not out of control. The story doesn't end with you. And by asking Jonah the second time, God's reminding him of what he taught, the lesson he taught to Elijah. And through Jonah, he addresses it to Israel of Jonah's day and to us, Christ's community. It's the only book of the Bible that ends with a question. And the question is not just, shall God not be merciful, but what is, by implication, what is your heart? Does it resonate with mine in concern for the lost, even people that you're not like, that are different from you? They're hard for you to mix with. You care about them enough to let them know that there is a God who forgives sin and welcomes the wanderer home. Let's pray.